I appreciate you being here. My name is Phil Thornton. I'd like to talk to you a little bit this afternoon about some of that third dimension, as I say, in missions, the issues of culture and how they affect our whole communication process. If you think with me in terms of missionary work, you have all of that scripture as a message. You have all of that scripture and message tied up in a culture, in a biblical culture. You have our culture that we take with us, and you have that target audience culture that you have to deal with. Same thing applies in medicine. You have all of that knowledge in medicine. All of that knowledge in medicine has to be transferred into another culture, into another situation. I don't know if you've had that experience or not. Some of you, I'm sure, have. When you are wanting to communicate something, and you think you've communicated it quite well, and they come back and they have done exactly the opposite from what you told them to do. At least, that's what you think you told them to do. Why won't they listen? So let's see if we can deal with a little bit of that issue this afternoon. If you've got a question at any point, like, can you see that, or do we need to turn off a light over here? See if you can hit that light. There you go. That's fine. Not long ago, I had the opportunity to be in Africa. One of the things that you talk about in Kenya in particular is the big five. Of course, you've got that lion, you've got the leopard, you've got the cape buffalo, the water buffalo, you've got the elephant, and you've got the rhino. I'm finding that the same thing applies, though, when it comes to this issue of cross-cultural communication. You have what I call the big five in the communication process. Number one, they see the world differently than we do. Now, if you take a look at that, you might recognize that uh, the folks down under, as we say, from Australia, might really look at that world a little bit different than we do. Maybe we're not on the top in the North American scene. Maybe this whole thing is really upside down, and we're on the bottom, whatever top and bottom is out there in space. They think differently than we do. They act differently than we do. They interact differently than we do. They decide differently than we do. Now, there is enough there to cause some rather significant problems in the cross-cultural communication process. So let's take a look at them very briefly as we run through them. First, they look at the world differently than we do meaning that they have a different worldview. Now, worldview is kind of like a set of glasses that you and I put on, and it colors everything that we see. There is a world of reality, but my worldview will not accept that total world reality. It filters out some things. There's th there are things that I believe that exist. There are things that I do not believe that exist. So if we're working somewhere in the world and somebody comes to us, as with the Motolone Indians in this 
in the northern jungles of Colombia, and you have a guy laying before you, and he is uh, on his last breath, and you ask his fellow tribal members what happened to him. They said, oh, that's not uh, hard. You see that big rock over there? The spirit came out of the rock, grabbed him by the throat, choked him to death. You and I might say you had a heart attack. Who's right? Did he have a heart attack or was there a spirit in that rock? Depends. At least our worldview will explain that differently. So we exclude certain things of what we see. We exclude certain things that we might experience. Is the world filled with angels? Is this room filled with angels? Do people have to deal with demons on an everyday level? Those are worldview issues. And depending on how you think and how you feel and how you react to those particular worldview issues will make a significant difference in the whole communication process. One of the things that cultural anthropologists do, which is my field and my background, is to look at what we call function. When you think of worldview, that set of glasses, that interpretation, First thing that worldview does is it explains. It explains how things got to be the way they are, what keeps them that way, what keeps them going, why things happen the way they do. There is a group in northern Africa. They have a myth. It goes something like this. One day the sun and the moon were carrying on a conversation. And the moon said to the sun, you know, the stars in the sky are trying to outshine us. My recommendation is that we gather up all of our stars and throw them into the sea. The sun agreed. So the sun and the moon supposedly gathered up all of the stars, their stars, and threw them into the sea. The sun did exactly that. The moon did not. That's why two things have happened. Number one, all of those shining fish that you see in the sea, There, there is a result of the sun having gathered up his stars and thrown them into the sea. And you know that thing that we call an eclipse? That's when the sun and moon come out and one tries to eat the other up because they're still angry at each other. And the only way that we can make that not happen is to go out and shout loudly and beat our chest so that the sun turns loose of the moon. Functions of worldview. Worldview helps us evaluate, helps us evaluate what's right, wrong, what's good, bad, what's ugly, what's beautiful. And by so doing, it regulates our behavior. The story is told of a man, an old man, who stole a rooster. There were a group of children on a playground. They saw the old man steal the rooster, put the rooster in a sack, And he started walking away. The children yelled, that old man has stolen a rooster. The schoolmaster came out. And he looked at the children. And he looked at the old man. And he went over to the old man. And he opened that sack. And he looked down in it. And he said, there's no rooster in the sack. Closed it. Handed it back to the old man. And he went his way. He lied. At least that's the way we explain it. But you see, that's not the rest of the story. Because in this culture, had the schoolmaster pointed out that the old man had stolen, it would have so shamed him that he would have probably gone home that night and taken his own life. Shame culture versus guilt culture. 
And we're dealing this with this on a regular basis because you and I come out of a guilt culture. We want to motivate somebody to come to know the Lord. We talk about personal guilt in their lives. It doesn't work in a shame culture. People don't feel personal guilt. You have to deal with the shame issue. Worldview helps us evaluate. Worldview helps us validate. It tells us why what we do is acceptable and not acceptable. That is a reason that for so long we got by with slavery in this nation or any other nation where slavery has been an issue. Because if a slave is less than human, then you can treat them as less than human. Worldview validates those actions. Worldview assigns values, and by assigning values, it prioritizes our commitment. The story is told there was a man, his wife, and his mother, who got into a canoe and started to cross a river. In the midst of the river, the canoe tipped over. Now, the man was only a fair swimmer. He could only save one person. He now faces a dilemma. Does he save his mother or does he save his wife? Depends on what culture you're in. Now, my wife can answer that one for you real quickly. That is, if I want to go home and have dinner tonight. But there are many cultures where mother or mother-in-law might come first. Our worldview helps us prioritize and make those decisions and thus validates what we do and prioritizes our commitment. Our worldview helps us interpret. All of us are equipped with what we call interpretational reflexes. It's kind of like when the doctor sits you up on the table and gets out that little hammer and starts hitting on the knee or the ankle. Something better move or we got a problem. You and I have been raised in the culture that has equipped us with an interpretational reflex that automatically tells us this is the reason something exists. They came to a missionary family one day and said, you know, all missionaries are cannibals. (laughs) That would have get you a little bit disturbed. What do you mean all missionaries? Oh, we saw it. Now, what do you mean we saw it? We said, uh, you know, uh, missionaries have that new baby. Yeah, they have that new baby. Well, one day they went to their cupboard and they took out a jar of, and it had a picture of some peaches on it. And they opened that jar and they took a spoon and they fed their baby the peaches that were inside that jar. And the next day they went over and it had a picture of some corn on it. And they opened the jar and they took a spoon and they fed their baby Some of that corn. And the third day we saw them go over and they took a jar down and had a picture of a baby on it. And they opened that jar. And they fed it to their baby. Don't you know that missionaries are cannibals? Very logical. From their point of view, interpretational reflex. We face the same thing when it comes to polygamy. Now, everybody knows that in a polygamous situation that a man wants to have more than one wife so that he can have sexual relations with more than one woman. Not necessarily. It is probably more of an economic issue. For example, a man 
lives in a culture where there's a great deal of warfare going on between tribes. The female population goes up, the male population goes down. Now, in this particular situation, women cannot live alone. Both culturally and simply it is too dangerous. So the alternative is for a man to have more than one wife. And after all, a man's wealth is determined by the number of pigs that he owns. And if you're going to own pigs, you've got to grow the crop to feed the pigs. And the only way you're going to be able to grow enough crop to feed the pigs is to have more wives to work in the field. So his first wife comes to him and says, Honey, if you really love me, you'll get another wife. This work is killing me. Interpretational reflex as to why something is. And by the way, when we start to remedy these kinds of problems, it can really get complex. You take that man who now has three wives and you say he's become a Christian and he comes to you and says, what am I going to do? I have three wives. Now you say, oh, I have the logical answer to that. You know, your first wife, the one that's about to see your same age, she has the hut. You can visit her hut. You can have sexual relations with her. But number two wife, you take care of her. And number three wife, who's probably only 14, 15 years old now, you take care of her, but you do not enter her hut and have sexual relations. And for the first time in a society that's never known prostitution, you have prostitution. Because that 14, 15-year-old girl is not going to live the rest of her life with an old man married to him without having sexual relations. Interpretational reflex. Worldview helps us to categorize things. It tells us what we can eat and what we don't eat, and whether it's food or not. I, I was back in my seminary days. I, for the first time in my life, and the only time in my life, I went snow skiing. Lord forgive me. On the way up, the fellow I was traveling with was from North Dakota. Now, this was just prior to Christmas. We were on our way home uh, during the Christmas holidays, and I said, you know, I can't wait. To, I grew up in East Texas, if you haven't gathered. And I said, I can't wait to get home get some of the black-eyed peas and cornbread. And he looked at me and said, peas? That's cow food. You don't feed people peas. <laughs> Poor misguided soul that he was. <laughs> Tells us what's human and what's not human. And most of you don't recognize this character. Some of us are a little older to recognize him. Is he human or is he not human? Once you deal with that worldview issue and all of those functions of worldview, you move to the second big potential problem area. And that's that people think differently. Yes, the brain functions up there, but honestly, I've about decided that it functions differently in different cultures. So you see, here in the West, we have what we call conceptual thinking. Now, what's conceptual thinking? First off, it's logical, or at least we think it's very logical. A young man from the West was talking with a young man from the East, and the conversation went something like this. Cotton does not grow in a cold-weather climate. England is a cold weather climate. Therefore, to which the young man from the Orient says, I don't know, I've never been there. Do you realize how much of our education we build on a logic that's supposed to give you experiences that you've never had? 
four years in the college classroom, and I even heard about the first two years in med school before you ever touch that body or something like that. We structure learning based upon the idea that you can learn something without having a hands-on experience. That's why on many places of the world, we have taken young men and women, we've put them in a room, we've put a professor before them, we've called it seminary, we've trained them to be pastors, and we have turned out some great seminary professors. Because that's what they saw, and that's what they modeled, rather than pastors. Logical. Our thinking is linear. Linear thinking moves from A to B to C to D. That is the only reason that the four spiritual laws ever work. Are you familiar with four spiritual laws or some variation of God loves you and has a plan for your life? You're separated from God. Christ died for you. Therefore, you ought to give your life back to, to Christ, uh, to God, so he can put you back together. A leads to B leads to C. What do you do when you work with people whose thinking is circular? It's not linear. Dr. Sam Kamalason, an Indian, stood in my classroom one day. I can still see him standing before that group. He held up his fist. He says, that is point A. If it is point A for you as North Americans, it cannot be point B because point A and point B are mutually exclusive. He says, for us in India, it doesn't matter. Point A, it can be point B also. Now, you have to get into that Hindu belief system and that Hindu worldview to understand that one idea does not mutually exclude the other. We are a people that we call, most of the time in North America, that say we have a, a, a mentality, a framework of what we call bounded sets. We tend to think of things as having bounds. You put a picture on the wall. You put a frame around it. You put a board on the wall. You put a frame around it. Wasted some good wood there, but it looks nice. You put a border around the edge of the floor. Why do you do that? Because you want the board separated from the wall, and you want the floor separated from the wall. It's bounded sets. You're either Christian or you're not a Christian. Then you hit a group of people that are fuzzy set folks. Things kind of move into one thing. Are you a Christian? Well, you know, yeah. Maybe. I'm in process. Are you sick? I guess. I, you know, I don't, because you do not have that clear delineation of categories that we have in North America. So those are the kinds of different thinkings. Ours, our thinking is very practical. My students always tell me if it's not practical, don't even bring it to the classroom. We gauge, we measure things. Is it practical? Is it scientific? Is it based upon propositions? And don't you know that every good sermon has three points to it? And come to a conclusion until you get into the world that I'm living in now. It's called the world of orality where the majority of the world are very oral people rather than based upon the kind of knowledge that you and I have. You're writing, you're reading even as I talk because that is the way that you and I learn. Now we're having to back up and relearn. Everything that we teach has to be done in some kind of story form or drama or riddles, or proverbs. We'll see something more about that. We live in a world that's categorized. I'll never forgive myself. My folks had an old roll-top desk. I'm building a new office in my home. 
what I wouldn't give for that old roll-top desk. I can't afford it now. But I, what I remember about that roll-top desk is you see all those little pigeonholes up there? That's why you can do this. In theology, you have Christology. You have soteriology. You have harmatiology. You have, we've taken the Bible, and we can even take a passage, and we know what it fits into. It fits into categories. Everything has a category. Because that is the way the structure of our mind fits. What happens when you change to an intuitional kind of thinking in the East? You're in India, for example, now. Now, follow the line of thought is shaped by Hinduism. The mind is the inner organ of deliberation and liberation. The untrained mind never gets beyond sensory experience. But the disciplined mind transcends and comes to know. Science, math, theology... They're all lower knowledge. In higher knowledge, reason does not intrude with its logic. Simply the mind sees. Nothing worth proving can be proven. Try to work in that framework for a little while. Nothing worth pro- The minute that I prove to you that it is true, that it is better, whatever, automatically shows you that it is of a lower knowledge and probably not that worthwhile, then how do I get to know that one world stuff? How do I get to know God, however you want to describe him, her, it in this case? The only way is to be released from the confines of the sensory experiences. To be released from the confines of logic and simply to intuit it. Work on medicine from that angle just a little bit. Then you have the concrete relational thinker. In the concrete relational thinker they use symbols. They use stories. They use events, objects, rather than propositions. They use music. They use drama to communicate. Let's see if this works. Do I have a a sound? She's telling the story of the fall of Satan. Pastors Conference. This is Zambia, Africa. You say she practiced that for hours. No, she prepared that in about five minutes. And she didn't even know I was going to ask her to do it. Music, drama, 
More than 80% of the world will receive important messages in this format as opposed to reading it in a book. Now you think about the dissemination of information, whether it's about AIDS or malaria or anything else. In that same culture, I was speaking with a medical doctor the very night after this lady had shared this in that pastor's conference. And I said, what are you doing? How are you doing in terms of, of HIV AIDS information? She says, well, we have our posters made up and they're scattered all over the country. And I thought, lovely. It's just nobody's probably going to look at them and read them that much. Because that is not the way the, that imported information is disseminated in that particular culture. Things that make a difference. We're looking at ways of acting now as a third potential barrier. Physical characteristics, body shape, general attractiveness, body breath, odors, height, weight, skin color, hair length, all of those things you say well, in the, within the framework of the gospel, you need to overlook those things. That is true. But I can assure you that those things make a difference in the delivery of a message. I had the experience of simply two or three times choosing a person to deliver a message to a larger group of people and something was wrong. Skin was a little too dark, they were a little too short, they were a little too tall. A number of factors could fit in. The only thing that I'm saying is that physical appearance does make a difference. I worked for three years in Columbia, South America. One of the things that I learned back then very quickly is if I were, if, if I were on my way to see a government official, number one, I put on a suit. Number two, it had to be a dark suit. Number three, it had to be with a white shirt and tie. And number four, I did stop on the way there and get my shoes shined. Now, I didn't have to do any of that if I wanted to sit out in the secretary's office and wait an extra four or five hours. Those are the kinds of things that do make a difference in communication. What about body language? Did you know that only about 20% of the message that we communicate is done verbally? And that includes what I'm saying to you before you today. 80% is tied up in body language. We work hard to learn another language. And there is no excuse for not learning that other language and learning it well. But remember that all of that language is set within a context. That's the reason it's so difficult to learn a language out of that context. Language learning is a social phenomenon, not an academic phenomenon. You have this thing of body language and what do we, what are we communicating? That includes the movement of the hands, the feet, the legs, the facial expressions, eye behavior. Some of you work in India or been in India. It's still, you know, I'm standing there talking with a fellow, lovely friends. I'll be back there at a pastor's conference and I'm sharing with them and they are understanding and yeah, there's going. And I'm saying, what in the world am I saying wrong? The only thing he's doing is agreeing with me. Because that's yes. I agree. So all of those body movements and stuff will make a difference. How do you point? How do you refuse? How do you agree? They would come up to me in, in Latin America and they say, do you have children? Yes, I have two. There's Andrea and there's Jeremy. And they kind of look at me. What? 
You see, this is the way you denote animals. This is the way you denote people. Little things. Little things that stand in the way. How do you point? My brother-in-law Dave Stevens was talking in, in previous ones. In, you know, a lot of the world, you, number one, you never point with your finger. Point with your lips. It's always fascinating. I'd stand out on the corner and I'd yell for a taxi and I'd do everything. And this guy would walk up right beside me there in Bogota. He'd go, and the taxi would stop just like that. And I, how in the world did he hear that? Because he was attuned to hearing that. Higher emotions expressed. Now I trust as we move through this thing rapidly, you can begin to see whether you're sitting down with a patient, whether you're sharing the gospel. All of these things make a difference. When do you make eye contact? I have a 36-year-old daughter. I have to stop and think now. Severely, profoundly handicapped with autism. All of her life, and I still do it. I will do it when I go home tonight. Get her face. Andrea, look me in the eye. And then I go somewhere in the world, for them to look me in the eye is a sign of disrespect. So I have to be careful how my interpretational reflexes tell me what to do and what's going on. Touching behavior. Oh my, this was a good one. We were in Kenya. Young man, young woman. Was with, they were with us and they were dating. Finest young couple you'd ever want to know. Clearly explained to them, do not go out walking, holding hands. Why? Because it means you're having sexual relations. They did not listen. We had problems. Because of the misinterpretation or the interpretation... Now, I, you know, we have a saying in East Texas, you can quit preaching and go to Medlin. I went to, I was having a problem the other day, went to five doctors, and it was only until I got to the fifth one before anybody ever put a hand on me. And I'm beginning to wonder, what am I paying my money for here? At least touch me. Do you touch that patient sitting before you or not? The funniest one I have ever been in was in the Altoplano region of Bolivia, working among the Aimaida. Two lovely Physicians, uh, lady doctors with me. And these ladies, the Aimaida ladies would come in and it's extremely cold up there. And the way they keep worn is they got four layers of sweaters and about 44 petticoats. They stand out like this. Because they don't have coats. They're laying down on the bed. Try to reach in and find the belly underneath all of that. Plus work through two languages in the process. At least we had a great time laughing at each other. Touching behavior. How do you greet? How do you farewell? How do you guide a person? Who can touch whom? Under what circumstances? Is it okay if I kiss my wife in public? Is it okay if I hold her hand? What does it mean when two men are walking down the street holding hands? Columbia doesn't mean anything except they're good friends. Things that make a difference. What about use of space? What we call territoriality. How we use space. How we arrange seats. Now, it's not going to work in this room. 
because of the way the tables messes a guy like me up entirely. Normally, if you come into a classroom or into a room within a little bit of time, and it's not that hard to do, I can pretty well pick out who the better students are going to be about where they sit. We're in language school in Costa Rica, and one of the things that we would love to do is on the weekends they bring in movies from the from the U.S. and show them, and they were in English, and we were starved for some English about that time, and so we would go. Now, when I you can imagine, I go into theater, humongous theater, put me on the end row, back at the back where I can stretch out. Now, my wife and I were sitting back there, and most of the, the, the center section was full about two-thirds of the way back. Everybody was sitting in there. Halfway through the movie, a young man came in. He walked up and down this aisle. He walked up and down that aisle. He found a seat right in the middle of that whole bunch of young people sitting there, and they stood up and they let him in. There were seats everywhere. Why would you do that? Because you are not a part of what is going on unless you're there with the group. How you use that space. Zones of participation. You go into a government office. You go into an office in the United States. You're on the fifth floor and you walk in the door. How do you figure out who the most important person in that office is? You can do it. And that and that different cultures will do it different ways. These are the kinds of things that will give you the clues, though, that say, if I have something important to say, whether it's medical information, whether it's the gospel, or to whom am I going to deliver that message so that it has the greatest level of impact? How we use crowd, talking to, love this one, talking distance. Stand up, young man. Let's use your friend. You and I can carry on a conversation. Come on up here. Right there. You and I can carry on a conversation. We'll stand here like this pretty much all day. What happens if I move in like this, though? <laughs> Sit down. I watched, uh, I watched a guy uh, meet a fellow on the street there in Costa Rica, wanted to practice his Spanish language. He was in the language institute there. This guy from, from the state started talking. The guy from uh, from Costa Rica moved in close. The guy from the States moved back. They went all the way around the corner, literally. <laughs> back it up. Now, what will happen is when you finally can't go any further, you're against a wall. You know what we do? We put up a barrier. You're too close. Now, wait till you get to the Middle East if you think close is close. Get out the breath mints. Time. Now you're familiar with this one. If we're going to an event, there are two questions that we ask. What time does it start? What time does it end? Most of the rest of the world, as you well know, that's not the important question. The important question is who's going to be there. And certain people will arrive at certain times. And you can tell who is the most important by who arrives at certain times. The same will be true about special times and seasons. So you ask yourself the question, what value does time have? For us, time is money. Not so in much of the rest of the world. Which is most important, past, present, or future? Present. 
then why is it that my students, when they would enter the, enter the classroom, would enter that class wanting to know when the end was, enter that semester knowing when the end was, that week, that, that, you know, give me the four years, whatever it is. We tend to be a people, yes, we live in the present, that is true. We're always looking to the future. You know why we struggle with China so much? Because the important things are not there in the future. The important things are in the past. Or you hit the present. Why doesn't that guy go ahead and finish building the second story on his house? Why is he just sitting there? He's living in the present. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Things that go along with language, pitch, rhythm, resonance, how we use our voice, inflection, how do these affect the reception of my message? All of these become important in the communication process. Now let's go to the environmental factors. Smells make a difference. It's the keenest sense that we have. I would always take my young people, get off the bus, and we'd go through the meat market first. Because I figured if they could live through that, I got them for the rest of the week. That smell is strong. You can't eat stuff if, 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 if the smell doesn't smell good. Then you have colors. Why is it when you go to McDonald's, which might used to be, not so much now, when you go into a restaurant, a fast food restaurant, what are the colors? Red and yellow? Why is it, why is it red and yellow? I want you to get out of there fast. Now, you take your wife or your husband out or your boyfriend or your fiancé or whatever to a nice restaurant and you're going to propose marriage that night. That's not red and yellow colors. Now, you get into a situation like one of the Indian groups in the southern part of Mexico. Forty-four words for green. I mean, I do good to come in. There's, there's green, there's light green, there's dark green. Some, they live in a green world. So color will make a difference there. Then you have adornment. Now, I know all of you would love to wear that dinner plate in your lower lip. But then again, some of the things that we do to our bodies are probably not any different. Adornment looks different in different places. What do those kinds of things communicate? Quickly, interacting. Who am I in relation to my audience? You show up on the scene, you're going to be a foreigner. That can be good, that can be bad. You're going to be a guest. That can be good. That can be not so good. And then, of course, you're the expert. I didn't want to be the expert. Why'd you come if you're not the expert? Whether it's in Bible or medicine or whatever the case might be. There are a group of special people that we always need to tend to be conscious of. The people who tend to show up first and listen to us most quickly in most cultures are what we call marginals. They don't have that much to fear by being different from the group to which they belong. They're on the peripheral edge many times. Now, here's what happens. If I take an important message 
whatever that message may be, and I put it in the hands of a marginal person, a person who's marginal to that particular culture or subculture, and I expect them to be the broker of that message to the rest of the culture, how well does that work? Then you have sponsors in some case. If I'm going into a village, somebody's got to say it's okay for him to come. Then you have influential people. I was in a church planning project in the southern part of Bogota. I said, who are the most influential people in this area? They gave me three. The priest, logical. The policeman, logical. The pharmacist. I said, why the pharmacist? Folks don't go to a doctor here. They go to the pharmacist. He gives them medicine. Creates status. Now let me ask you a question. Most of you have participated in some kind of short-term teams. What happens when you go in and that pharmacist becomes nothing more than your translator and you take over the pharmacy for that week that you're there in clinic? What happens to that person's statue in the eyes of the people with whom he or she has to serve? There are always consequences. Keep in mind, the more closely communication follows patterns of the existing social structure, the more effective it will be. People communicate more of others of their own social ranking. Prestigious communication generally flows from top to bottom. It's just figuring out who's on top to make it move to the bottom. Social distance does affect communication. Social distance being perceived distance between me, you, two different people in a society or groups in a society. Lastly, ways of deciding. Culture A says that any decision is better than no decision. Culture B says no decision is better than a wrong decision. I was on my way to India. We were in a plane. plane landed and was fogged in in England. We sat on the tarmac 13 hours as the pilots called Delhi trying to get permission for us to get off the plane. Most of the North Americans were saying, let us off the plane. I don't care what it costs. I don't care who says what. We're going to go off this plane now. We'd run out of milk for the babies. We'd run out of water. The bathrooms did not work. Sounds like that cruise ship that just got stranded out there. The pilot, I was sitting far enough forward that I could listen to him. Any North American pilot would have taken any decision is better than no decision in this situation. Indian pilot says, if I make a wrong decision, I'm in trouble. Better to make no decision than to make a wrong decision. I leave you with these questions then. How are decisions made? By groups? By individuals? We tend to be a highly individualistic society. We expect people to make decisions as individuals. Much of the world makes a decision, not as an individual, but as a group. You have a person sitting before you in clinic. You're treating that person and you ask them a question. If that person is not the decision maker in their family, in their unit, they cannot answer that question rightly for you because they are not the decision maker. Same is true in the presentation of the gospel. Who makes the decisions? What is the process involved in making decisions? When are decisions made? Where are decisions made? What I'm simply saying is this. 
in this thing that we call cross-cultural communication, there are all kinds of potential barriers. Worldview, how people think, how people act, how people interact, how people decide. These factors affect what you will do or the success of what you will do greater than any other single set of factors. And yet, I can tell you that most of the time, this set of factors are the ones that are treated the least. Whether it's on a short-term team, or even long-term missionary preparation, or whatever. We deal with that knowledge base. Whether it's medicine or the gospel, we do something maybe about learning about our own culture, though not too much. And we don't do much about learning how that target audience is going to react or interact with us. And that is the reason so much of what we do falls on deaf ears. That is why they don't listen. Yes, they're trying to listen. They're just different and they can't hear us. Questions? Observations? If you want to find out this information, where do you go? There are books, and let me give you a few, that uh, I'll have to stop and think on that one. There are so many. Uh, Some of the same information that I've talked about get an author by the name of uh, David Hesselgrave. Another uh, cultural anthropologist that you might want to read is a fellow by the name of Charles Kraft. Get into some of the perspectives course material. Don Richardson has a little bit of that kind of material. Is Foreign to Familiar, is that one that you would recommend? Foreign to Familiar, is that one that speaks to I, I, I'm not that familiar with it, but most any of this is, is, is at least good material. Uh, part of the problem is in a lot of that material is it's written for not necessarily just a, it's a, Maybe an academic audience. If I may be so crass, if you want to uh, get into some of this, I, I, I and my partners have been dealing about 40 years in it. Let, let us come help you. I gave up trying to teach 20-year-olds at Asbury University sometime. Let somebody else fight that battle just to, to go around and try to help people listen. <laughs> so I'll be glad to help you. Any other questions? Have I thoroughly confused you? Um, so, when I'm listening to um, uh, this message, it seems to be like a lot of times it's basically dependent on how they perceive their worldview and how um, they sort of interact within their own society. However, as we share the gospel to them, sometimes the Christian message contains our own worldview. That is correct. Or our own perspective of what is true. That is correct. With a capital T. Yes. But how do they accept that? Like, they don't. I'm sorry to be so blunt. The the truth of the matter is, in many cases, they don't. And uh, I have, in a situation like that, keep always keep in mind that if they reject the gospel, I want them to reject the gospel, not my culture that I have wrapped around the gospel. And in terms of my methodology, I go back to the medical profession. Do no harm. Yes, 
doing evangelism wrongly can't even do harm. Any other thing? Our time is up. Thank you. You've been kind with your attention at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Blessings on you.